spirit throngs that hoist us high, three thousand warriors deep. Spray our dreams on any surface where the paint will stick. Try to time the rhythm. Listen for the click. Rise if you're sleeping, stay awake. Rise if you're sleeping, stay awake. We are young supernovas, and the heat's about to break. Hello and welcome to episode 1624 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? Doing okay. I I feel like we sparked a, a trend, a non-tender headline pun trend, Ben. <laughs> yes, as was brought to our attention in the Facebook group, <laughs> the title that we used for our episode previewing the non-tender deadline, Non-Tender is the Night, which I stole from you because you used it for our little uh, recording session. And then we found out that you were not the only person to think of that headline. No, <laughs> there. It's been quite a, a common and popular one this week. I just am happy that uh, baseball writers are uh, reading. You know, I think um, I think readers make better writers, so yes. I'm glad that we're all reading. But yes, yeah. <laughs> evidently, beyond the box score, beat us to that title by about eight years. They titled a, a blog <laughs> that in 2012, but I feel like you know the statute of limitations has expired. I think in the baseball blogosphere, eight years—that's a long time. I yeah. think uh, we're allowed to reuse a headline after eight years. That's all right. Yeah, and, you know, it should not detract from the fact that uh, it was indeed a non-tendery kind of night yesterday. A non-tendered yeah. night. Yeah, so I guess it wasn't quite the apocalypse that was feared, but there were some worrisome signs. So yeah. we talked last week with Craig Edwards and Eric Longenhagen about why this was shaping up to be potentially a historic and terrible non-tender deadline. This is the time of year when teams have to decide, yes, we want you back and we are either going to go to arbitration with you or we're going to work out some sort of deal, but we are committing to offer you a contract and have you play for us next year or not. They can non-tender you and say, nope, we don't want you, or at least we don't want you at the salary that we expect you to get in arbitration, and then we can let you go. You're a free agent. Maybe we'll try to resign you at a lower rate. And as Eric mentioned and has written for Fangraphs, there has been a trend toward an increasing number of non-tenders in recent years, and that increase continued, but the increase, at least on the surface, was not extreme. So there were only, what, a a handful more non-tenders this year than there were last year, which was already a a high number, but it, it wasn't an explosion relative to last year. And some of the most notable potential non-tender candidates were tendered, which, as Emma Bachelary pointed out on Twitter, is just a weird verb just in this context to, yeah. to tender someone a contract. I guess it's uh, less weird when you say you tender them a contract. But there were some guys like Gary Sanchez, like Chris Bryant, like Tommy Pham, who seemed like they might potentially be non-tender candidates in this weird year when teams are cost-cutting. And those guys did get tendered contracts, so they are still with their teams. So the big shockers didn't happen, and the total number of non-tenders was not dramatically different. However, there was a significant increase in pre 
tender contracts. I I don't even know what you call them exactly, but basically before the non-tender deadline, you can work out a deal and say, yeah, we'll just sort of bypass this deadline and we'll agree to come back and then you're you're back on a one-year deal. And there were a number of those that were worked out like a lot more than usual. So it seems like there were a lot of players that were wary of being non-tendered, just sort of spooked by the whole atmosphere and decided, yeah, I want to be back. And, and some of those deals seemed, you know, fine market rate, what you would expect. Some of them maybe were a bit below market because some players were a bit antsy and, and scared yeah. of being cast adrift. So there were a lot more of those than there were in the typical year. And I guess that is maybe the most obvious sign that this was unusual. Yeah, I think that there were, you know, some of the names are names that you would sort of expect to be on the on the edge of needing, you know, sort of they were guys who had been identified as potential non-tender candidates. But then you have, you know, like Matt Olson got a one year, $5 million deal. Mm-hmm. Matt Olson's pretty good at baseball. Jose Barris yeah. is pretty good at baseball, you know. So I think that to look at this and, and simply compare the the 53 or 56, depending on how you were counting, I guess, uh, non-tenders last year compared to the 59 we saw this year and say, oh, well, this wasn't all that bad, I think, is to ignore the the effect that the anticipation of being non-tendered, which, is that just raw chicken? (laughs) We could make it about chicken tenders and then it doesn't sound so baseball after dark, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of gross still though, raw chicken, no one (laughs) wants to think too long about that. No. So I think to to sort of say, oh, well, these numbers weren't all that far apart is to to miss some of the, the chilling effects that the anticipation of being non-tendered probably had. And there were a couple of names that I was I was surprised by. Like mm-hmm. I I was surprised that David Dahl got non-tendered. Yep. I was pretty surprised that Matt Whistler got non-tendered just because of the the sort of bounce back year that he ended up having although ben Mm -hmm. i have a thing to say about matt whistler and you can tell me if you think this is too mean especially in in light of his Uh non-tender matt whistler's pitch face matches his name (laughs) he looks like he's whistling while he's pitching it's like facial onomatopoeia or something there's probably a better way of describing that which is not a reason for him to be (laughs) non-tendered if anything i think there's probably a marketing opportunity there that the twins are missing out of but that's missing out on i should say that's the thing about matt whistler but like i was surprised to see looking at his last couple headshots on baseball reference he has a little bit of pete fairbanks yeah he looks very nervous (laughs) which you know in prior seasons i think was likely matt whistler reacting rationally to stimulus but he Mm -hmm. had quite a a good season in you know it's 25 innings whatever but like he had quite a nice little bounce back here for the twins this year Mm -hmm. like he had a a a, like a 107 era and a fip in the low threes and you know he he had a nice year and he was he was non-tendered so i think there were some surprises i have a question for you ben about a remark that i saw repeatedly on on Twitter on the second. And do you ever sometimes see people reacting very strongly to something and then worry that you're missing something because you are not reacting as strongly to it as they are? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked with with Eric and Craig about the different profiles of players who were likely to find themselves sort of on the the wrong end of the non-tender 
conversation. And it was that first base DH type where there is a lot of perceived sort of fungibility between those players, right? They're all kind of the same. So you let go of your one that's going to be a little more expensive and you can probably go find a guy who's pretty much as good on the open market for less money. And I think that that is true. And we saw some of those guys get let go. There was a lot of conversation on Twitter last night about the the uncertainty surrounding the DH and the effect that that was having on non-tender decisions on the part of National League teams in particular, but sort of just in general. And I want to know how much you think the DH thing matters, because I think it matters some, for sure. Mm -hmm. It definitely matters some. But I think that when it comes to the non-tender conversation that... It seems just as likely to me that that's as much a, a, a reflection of, the, like I said, the sort of perceived fungibility among these players as it is anything else. And even with the DH, a lot of them were likely to get let go with the hope that they would be brought back on less expensive deals or that right. there would be another one who's cheaper. So am I am I underestimating the effect that the lack of rules clarity is having here? I'm open to that feedback, but I was feeling kind of off the mark yeah, yesterday. Think so. I, I think it's very relevant for certain players, of course, and there are players on the free agent market already, guys like Nelson Cruz and other DH types who it really matters whether they have 15 suitors or 30 suitors, and that might be something that's holding up some individual free agencies, but no, I don't think really on the whole it's having some sort of sweeping effect on non-tenders specifically. Of course, you know, teams use the DH spot to sort of rotate players in. Right. A lot of teams do. If you have Nelson Cruz, maybe you always have Nelson Cruz DHing, but no other teams have Nelson Cruz except the one. So there are teams that just sort of use that spot to rest players or, you know, maybe they set up some sort of complicated position switching, time sharing arrangement. And so it might be relevant, even if they're not signing a dedicated DH, there might be someone they think would spend some time at DH. So could be a consideration, but no, I wouldn't say it's uh, really affecting things on a major level. That's very generous of you. I appreciate that. I was, you know, it's a terrible feeling to be like, oh, no, I've missed something. Right. It could be relevant for, say, Kyle Schwarber, I suppose, who is one of the more notable names who was non-tendered. So, you know, there were some good players, some decent players, uh, Schwarber, Hanser Alberto, and Travis Shaw, and Michael Franco, and NL MVP vote-getter Ryan Tapera, and Eddie Rosario. You know, some of these guys were non-tendered. Some were waived or DFA'd. That's another thing. I guess if you're counting non-tenders, maybe there's a a slightly different number than if you're counting all of the guys who weren't technically non-tendered but were let go of either, you know, before the deadline or or just via some other type of transaction. So Eddie Rosario, I guess, would be one who was waived by the twins. And, you know, he's a, a pretty good player and MVP vote getter just barely like Ryan Tapera. They, I guess, tried to trade him and didn't find a taker right away. So he's out there now. Archie Bradley, Carlos Rodon. Yes. And you mentioned David Dahl. And, and yeah, I mean, David Dahl's not even 27 yet. 
and uh, he's a former top prospect, and he's been good in the big leagues. He's obviously been hurt a lot, and he was quite ineffective when he was playing in 2020, but... It's not as if the Rockies necessarily have uh, a whole outfield worth of better players than David Dahl, so I would think that uh, he might still be an improvement for them if they had chosen to keep him or if they bring him back. But yeah, there were a lot of players in that kind of, you know, Schwarber bucket or Adam Duvall or Nomar Mazzara, you know, sort of that corner guy, veteran, maybe some power, but not a ton of power in the current context of historic home run rates. Yeah, gosh, the the Reds let go of Archie Bradley and Brian Goodwin. Yeah, those were like trade deadline acquisitions for them. Right. <laughs> yeah, that Archie Bradley move really surprised me. I thought that they would hold on to him, but yeah, there. Yeah. I I think that there were, you know, it is one less spot. The DH being sort of undecided is one less spot to cycle guys through. I mean, even someone like Sanchez, where you have all these injured outfielders who have to cycle through the DH. And then our logjam at first, it is at least one more spot that isn't catcher where he can potentially play. So, yeah, I think that there's, yeah, like, and Adam Duvall, I think they'll bring Adam Duvall back. But mm-hmm. there were, there were no, there were no non-tenders so dramatic such that I had to go, okay, pals, who's going to write up the Chris Bryant non-tender? Right. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a great day. It's not the best when you have a bunch of, of, capable big leaguers who are suddenly flooding the free agent market that's not a (laughs) day where you're like i feel really good about baseball today yeah and also that's like the the most newsy day of the offseason so far it's like waiting to see who is on the cut list that's just not a lot of fun like normally at this time of year maybe you're getting excited for the winter meetings which would be starting (laughs) now basically or next week and they will not be taking place because of covid of course so I hope maybe that now that the non-tender deadline has passed and teams know what the market looks like or they know who's available and who's not, that maybe free agency will start to pick up. And we have seen some deals signed and we've talked about some of the one-year deals and there have been even a couple of two-year deals, you know, Trevor May to the Mets or, or Mike Miner. I mean, so far at least the the very small samples of free agents who have signed you would not necessarily look at the terms and say, oh, no, it, it's the end of free agency. But this is kind of, you know, one-year deals for the most part that we've seen thus far. It's hard to gauge, I think, in, until we start seeing some of the bigger names moving to see whether teams will still be willing to hand out long-term deals and big dollar deals and deals that would have looked normal in a more normal world. So I think it's kind of encouraging that you're seeing, you know, the Charlie Mortons and Robbie Rays of the world sign deals that don't really make you scratch your head, but those are short-term deals. And so maybe it's kind of hard to get a sense of the market, but maybe now things will start moving a bit because the non-tender uncertainty is behind us. And this is when the winter meetings would start to take place. So perhaps we will start to see some higher profile signings soon. Yeah, I don't think that it's been, you know, the the fact that the market has been quiet before now hasn't struck me as particularly strange because I think it's yeah. become more and more normal for winter meetings to really be the mm-hmm. the starting gun. I do wonder if it wouldn't be worth thinking about making it so that if you non-tender a player, you can't sign that same player back. Mm, yeah, I wonder 
if that would help or hurt. I mean, on the one hand, you're you're taking away one potential team that would be interested in that player's right. services after he's cut loose, but you're also taking away the possibility of cutting a guy for one amount of money and then picking him up for less. And that might make you think twice, I guess, if if the choice is between keeping him for the rate that you had an option for or that you would get in arbitration and then not having any chance to keep him at all. That's interesting. Yeah, I feel like it would find its way to being exploited by teams so that (laughs) player salaries don't actually end up changing all that much. But it does make me wonder if that avenue wasn't available. You know, I know that there were definitely players who were let go where they're like, we hope to bring him back on less money. And I'm like, this is a really weird way to continue to have a working relationship with a potential employee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like Michael Elias, who I think has not really mastered the art of camouflaging what (laughs) he's doing. And, you know, like uh, the Orioles are are doing like a real Astros style hard tank here. And uh, Elias was in Houston when they did it the first time and they ended up getting good on the other side of it. And maybe the Orioles will, too. But they are really going whole hog here with the not contending right now. And he's just he's not very good at expressing it in a way that would make you want to watch this team. You know, he was asked about Hunter Alberto, whom the Orioles let go, and he said they're interested in bringing him back. But, quote, Part of our job is to operate within the economic framework of the collective bargaining agreement, which is uh, nonsense as far as I can tell. I, I don't know what that means exactly. There's nothing in the CBA that says that the Orioles can't bring back Hanser Alberto. So no. basically what he's saying is we don't want to pay anyone who's going to make any amount of money. It's not like Alberto was uh, in line for a huge payday or something, and he's been pretty decent for them. But yeah, he just uh, he doesn't really advertise the team very well. Like uh, there's another tweet with a quote from him where he said there will come a time when we flip the switch to maximizing wins in the upcoming season but we're not there yet this isn't fun and you know (laughs) (laughs) of course uh you know he's he's saying that uh, we're not maximizing wins in the upcoming season like i i think that is defensible like i'm not saying that the orioles should be the biggest spending team in the market this year like they're they're ready to make the leap and all they need is a couple of big free agents to get good like they're still a ways away so yeah like they're not maximizing wins in 2021 they're trying to maximize wins i don't know two or three or four years down the road and and that's uh tanking i guess but perhaps with an eye toward getting good and and contending, not purely to save money, although who knows what he has been instructed to do when it comes to trimming payroll. But yeah, you know, to say uh, Orioles baseball, this isn't fun. (laughs) It's it's just, it's not much of a a tagline, although I don't really know what the alternative is because like they're, you know, getting rid of all of their recognizable players. Like even Iglesias, they just traded to the Angels. Like, you know, they're just not really keeping anyone all that, notable so it's hard to like you know who do you put on the cover of the Orioles media guide at this point Adley Rutschman I think the answer <laughs> yeah, is Rutschman I guess that's, that's it's probably gonna true. be Rutschman will he yeah. play in Camden Yards next year almost certainly not will he be <laughs> all over that ballpark oh I bet yeah, yeah it's it's such a funny thing because on the one hand I whenever these quotes happen 
I do have some sympathy for front office executives who, you know, they get a budget. Like, they don't get to spend everything they want. Now, I think that in general and with Elias in particular, there are guys who are brought in with the understanding that they are very good at executing a particular kind of rebuild. So I don't want to let him off the hook either, right? But, you know, they get a budget from ownership. It's not like they get to spend whatever they want. And on, on the one hand, like, it is a bummer for fans to hear that. On the other hand, there is something valuable about them being so honest about what they're doing because then you can at least engage with it in a it's easier to engage with it in sort of an intellectually honest way because they've already admitted what they're doing they can't hide behind we're so excited about the farm system and Mm -hmm. the the bright young talent that is training in the miners today and will be the stars of the future right like they're not doing any of the like tomorrowland disney yeah (laughs) stuff so like there's some value in that from a from the perspective of analysts at the very least because we can engage with it I think in a more sort of robust way because we don't have to do the work of tearing down the the Tomorrowland facade first but it's just a real it's just a real bummer yeah <laughs> it's just a terrible bummer and like you said like they traded Iglesias on Thursday and who who are they going to point to to say you know if fans can, if fans can come back to the ballpark next year if we if everybody gets vaccinated and it's safe to to come together in crowds again who are they going to say you've you've waited you've waited a year to be able right. to go to the ballpark and now you get to see <laughs> who is it yeah i mean i like John Means sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully Trey Mancini's back and healthy and right. But uh, yeah, not a lot of notable names on that roster right now. I mean, and, I guess what Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah, right. Yeah. So sure. I mean, you know, maybe it'll work. Like it, it worked in Houston. Maybe the Orioles will get good down the road. Like there have been some promising developments there on the farm system and all, but it is uh, really sort of scorched earth there right now to a degree that we haven't seen with most non-Astros teams. So they're they're really committing to the bit and uh, not even trying to disguise it, which, you know, I don't know if they could if they wanted to. The husk of Chris Davis. <laughs> yeah, right. Pat Velika. <laughs> Paul Fry. Get excited for middle reliever, Paul Fry. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to just close, I guess, with a a quick excerpt from Joe Sheehan's newsletter edition about the non-tenders. And this is, I, I think, nothing that we haven't said at various times on this podcast before, but... He sort of put this non-tender day in context and in the the larger landscape. So he wrote, What the cases of Bradley, Schwarber, Rosario, and others do, however, is once again shine a light on MLB's compensation model. Those players' projected performances have value to teams, but it's their service time that would have driven their 2021 salaries. All were underpaid up until now because their service time has been more important to their compensation than their performance was. This is the core feature that has to change in the next CBA, just as it had to in the last CBA. 40 years ago, teams valued veteran players and their experience, and they had a less informed attitude toward how players aged. The MLBPA itself valued those things, which is why arbitration and free agency were tied to service time. Now what matters is how will you perform next year, the next three years, the next five. And if a 22-year-old can produce a few runs more, or sometimes a few runs less, for a lot less money, it's an easy choice. 
teams are just not going to go back to paying for service time. They will pay for performance, however, which means the MLBPA has to present a plan that pushes money to the players who get a chance to perform. That means a much higher minimum salary to both better pay young stars and raise the cost of tanking. It means pushing back arbitration rights to two years of service, which will by rule end the terrible Super 2 concept introduced in 1991. It's simply too cost-effective for teams to make the choices they're making now, and the only way to fix that is for younger players to make more money. The MLBPA will have to abandon one of its central tenets that just lasting in the majors has intrinsic value. It won't be easy, but it's the only way to rebalance the scales. And I think we've expressed a lot of that in the past on the podcast and agree with it. And easier said or written than done. And, you know, you have to give up something to get something unless you are prepared to walk out and uh, have a work stoppage and endure the consequences there in hopes of forcing some concessions. So that is something that is looming on the horizon too. <laughs> yeah. And I think I I was asked this question in my chat this week of what I think kind of will happen when the CBA negotiation gets underway in earnest and whether we're likely to have a work stoppage. And I I have a hard time answering that question because I don't know that the relationship has has ever been quite so acrimonious, at least not in recent memory. But I think so much depends on how how many games with fans teams are able to play next year. Because if we have another year of reduced salaries, I just I I almost think that it makes a, a work stoppage less likely because how are players going to endure a third year of that? Right? You're already right. if you're going to shift the pay scale such that younger players when they're younger and more productive are going to get compensated in a fair way you're already going to have this weird like kind of group of kind of older players who are just going to get kind of jobbed in the course Mm -hmm. of their careers right they're never going to get their big payday although they're not really getting much of one now and then to say and you're going to need to engage in a work stoppage after you haven't been paid to to the max in the last two years i don't know it's just going to be such a mess Yeah. Another thing I saw that you were asked about in your chat was (laughs) someone suggested off-season topic for Effectively Wild, a Stove League episode. I know. (laughs) And you wrote, Ben, you can just G-chat me. I swear, that wasn't me. I know, but I'm- I didn't put anyone up to it. That was a purely (laughs) independent request. It's just what the listeners want. It's what they want. I know. I got to get on it. I got to get on it. Yeah, it's about time. I'm sorry. I was busy watching football in the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday. I had that on while I was chatting, and I thought to myself, you know, baseball did a lot of things in a lot of really goofy ways, and I don't want to undersell that, but we didn't do this. Yeah. We didn't get preempted by a big Christmas tree. (laughs) I save a lot of time not being a a football fan. And you're going to live so much longer than I am, Ben. (laughs) Watching Stove League. You're just going to live for a lot longer. All right, so it is also about time for us to get to our guest. We have an interview today, and last week we did a segment about high school baseball in Japan. Today we are doing a segment about the highest level of baseball in Japan in NPB. And this is something that's really interesting to me. Right now, I I think, you know, NPB is the the best baseball league in the world that is not in MLB, the highest level. It's it's generally agreed to be, you know, higher than AAA quality. And there is a, a 
dynasty absolutely dominating NPV right now, and I did not know much about the details of how and why that team has done so well. So the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks have just swept their second straight Japan series, that is NPB's equivalent of the World Series. They've won four straight titles now and seven since 2011, which is just mind-boggling if you're an MLB fan and you're thinking, are the Dodgers a dynasty? Like, the Dodgers seem like a dynasty to us now because they won one World Series and they win the division every year. That's kind of what constitutes a dynasty at this point in MLB. Well, over in NPB, the Hawks have just absolutely laid waste to the rest of the league. They win every year. And we are going to talk to Jason Koskri, who has been on the podcast before. He writes about sports for the Japan Times, and we're going to ask him all about how the Hawks got so good and how they might influence the rest of NPP. And we'll also get into some other NPP topics with him, both women's baseball in Japan. Some NPB teams have sponsored women's teams and also some of the high-profile players who could be posted and coming over to the state soon, including Tomoyuki Sugano, who is probably the best pitcher in Japan, and also a player who has been dubbed the Cuban Otani and has been playing in Japan. So obviously that perked up our interest. Ben, can I do a quick plug for Fangraph's functionality that's related to this conversation real quick? So on Thursday, as we recorded this, we released the new international player functionality on the board. So Ah, previously, the prospect team has focused on international amateurs because of the July 2 signing period with that getting pushed back to January. uh, It kind of gave us an opportunity opportunity to bring together both the international amateurs in Latin America and also the pro international players who either are being posted or might be posted in the future. So if you go over to the board and click on the international players tab, you will see a mix of those guys. And there are uh, a couple of names from NPB there. So go uh, go check that out. Um, look at Eric's reports if you're interested after this conversation in hearing more about these guys. Excellent. And I will link to that on the show page as always. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk to Jason about all things NPB. Time to talk about the dominance of the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks, and to do that, we are joined now by Jason Koskri, who covers sports for the Japan Times and has been with us before. Hey Jason, welcome back. Hi, how you doing? Thanks. Pretty well, so I'll just read from the lead to your story here from last week after the Hawks won the Japan Series. You wrote, the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks may be in the middle of an epoch-making run in Japanese baseball that could, if other teams can emulate the way they operate on and off the field, cause a shift in the game. That, however, remains to be seen. What we know for certain, and with even greater clarity after the Hawks secured a fourth straight Japan Series title with a 4-1 win over the Yomiuri Giants in Game 4 on Wednesday, is that this era of Japanese baseball, without question, belongs to SoftBank. And you went on to recount their recent record. They have swept the Japan Series in consecutive years against the Giants both times. They are the first team to win four straight titles since the Giants won nine in a row in the 60s and 70s. And they've won seven now Japan Series titles since 2011. So it's a really impressive run and I guess the most impressive in the past 50 years or so. 
But I guess we should maybe put it in context a little just for MLB fans who are probably just amazed that you could possibly win four titles in a row because we haven't seen an MLB team win in back-to-back years, even in 20 years now. I guess conditions are a little more conducive to dynasties in NPB, right? Because you have 12 teams and you only have one playoff round, the Climax Series, that comes before the Japan Series. So if you do get good and you still need to be really good and have things go your way, but I guess it's a, a little more plausible to reel off a record like this than it would be in the States. Yeah, I would say so, except I know for sure if you win the pennant, then you've got a really built-in advantage because what they do now is if you win the pennant, you get an, an actual a game advantage. So you start the series up one to zero. So, I mean, that's that's a huge advantage if you win the pennant. Although, to be fair, the last two years before this year, SoftBank did not win the pennant. So they had to overcome that one game advantage to make it to the Japan Series to win the Japan Series. But, yeah, it's it's a lot more conducive because there are fewer teams and, like you said, the fewer playoff rounds. There, are, there have been teams who have overcome the one game advantage and there have been a couple of teams who overcame it. You you don't get any home games either if you're the team that has to overcome that one game advantage. So you're on the road for the entire series until you get to the Japan series. So if you're the third place team, you're on the road for two straight rounds. You don't get a Japan series game or a home game until you get to the Japan series. Mm -hmm. So even within the context of that, though, this is quite a run and quite an accomplishment as you've covered. So I, I guess the first place I'd like to start is organizationally, how are they distinguished from other teams in NPB? Where are the places that they are real standouts, not only in terms of the players on the field, but in terms of their organizational infrastructure? I think the one place where, where SoftBank really stands out from everybody else is pretty much on, on their on their farm system, because basically in NPB, it's just the top team and then a farm team. That's it. Just just the one team. But SoftBank has basically taken the lead and signed a bunch of players. And so they've created a, a, a third team. So they have two farm teams, which is unusual because I think it's maybe them and the Giants are the two that have farm teams that are actively playing games. And they just play games against industrial teams, college teams. Sometimes they play against Korean teams. And so you have all these players that they've signed because in in the MPB draft basically you can sign regular you can draft players as regular but then you have these other picks who are called developmental players so they're not allowed to you know be with the top team or play on the top team but they can play on the farm and so you just have all these guys with nowhere to put them so teams draft and draft and then when they get to the developmental part of the draft they can just stop when whenever they're done so the draft is over when everyone decides that they've picked all the players they want to pick and often SoftBank will just will keep picking a few guys and pick up developmental players and end up putting these guys in this big crucible on the farm team. So they're pushing the guys who are on the second team. The second team guys are pushing the guys who are on the first team. You just got this this massive competition. And I'm guessing and they they understand that, yeah, not every guy that we sign is going to hit, but the ones who do are going to be battle tested. They're going to have like learned the skills and they're going to be ready to contribute. And they've actually done just amazingly well with with this system. If you look at their third team, Kodai Senga, who a lot of people have talked about as a potential major league player, he'd be there now if they actually posted players. And he was in the World Baseball Classic with Sugano a couple of years ago. He was a developmental draft pick. Takuya Kai, who's their catcher, who was an all-star, who was a Japan Series MVP a couple of years ago, he was a developmental pick. And 
the guy who won game two of the Japan Series this year, he was the developmental pick. The starting shortstop this year was a developmental pick. They've got this Cuban reliever, Levi Moynello, who's who's the best setup in Japan this year. He was a developmental pick. So the guys that they get that hit and they can bring up through the system and with this competition and they've got, they've just set themselves apart and they they invest money into their development their developmental system they they invest money into their farm team into their farm team facilities into their training facilities more so than the other teams do and it's just created this organization with just this amazing depth that they can call from and because they also have the money to fill other holes where they need to it's just kind of helped set them apart yeah, and how did they get to that point? Because I think maybe a lot of American fans think of the Giants as the Yankees of Japan, they're sometimes called. So how did the Hawks get to this point where they're beating the Giants at their own game? Was it that the team was sold right in the middle of last decade? Was that how they got the resources that they have now? And and I guess when did the current management team take over? Because I know that Sadaharu Oh, who used to manage this team and then went on to be the GM, he's still the chairman of the Hawks, right? And he was on those great Giants teams of the 60s and 70s. So if they give out rings for winning the Japan Series, he must just have a ring for all of his fingers and toes at this point. But how did the Hawks sort of ascend to the point where they are so dominant? I mean, if it was just money, then the Giants would win the pennant a lot of years and the Tigers would win the pennant some years. Other teams have money. It's just, I think with SoftBank, they are, they've been so adept at spreading their resources around. It's not like, okay, here's a really a really high price free agent that we're going to go after. We're just going to sign all the best players that hit the market every year. And that's how we're going to do this, which, you know, that's what the Giants have been doing sometimes. But with SoftBank, I think it's mostly just the decisions that they make that where they say we're going to invest in other parts of our team that may not have an immediate benefit or may not have a benefit that can be so clearly seen and we're not going to consider that a waste of money we're going to consider that just an investment and let's just pay for it whereas you have other teams like the giants and like some of the other teams in in mpb where they sort of they have this i guess older school way of thinking where we've got to put our resources where we can see the immediate returns on them so we're going to go out and get this big free agent not that the hawks don't go out and get big free agents sometimes too but it's just the way they spread their resources and they're just better at that because they, I mean they have the money but it's also the decisions that they make with their money that has really helped set them apart from Miyomi Yuri and the rest of the league. You mentioned their sort of profound commitment to player development and taking a broad view of that. I'm curious if that also translates into their approach to analytics and if you can kind of give our listeners who might not be as familiar with NPB what the state of affairs is when it comes to analytics in the front office in Japanese baseball. It's definitely behind the major leagues, but it's they're they're catching up. Um Japanese teams are using they're using the TrackMan system. A lot of them are now. I think maybe Hiroshima could be the only one unless they've added it recently. So um in SoftBank is pretty heavy into that, which I guess sort of makes sense because they you know they have an IT parent company so I think Rock 10 also does a lot with that and the Marines were doing a lot of analytical things when Bobby Valentine was here 
yeah, the, the SoftBank is kind of, I don't know if they're the lead in the pack in that, but I'm pretty sure they're pretty higher up. Japanese teams are, I guess, like MLB teams. They, they keep a lot of that stuff really, really close to the vest as far as what they're doing and a lot of the tools they're using. And you don't even see the amount of analytic analytics or stable metrics made publicly available here as you would for MLB teams. But I know the Hawks were, you know, they were kind of at the forefront of using like pitch effects, pitch effects systems and a lot of other analytical data that they can then give to their players. So they are pretty, um, a pretty sabermetric savvy team. And is there sort of a, a model Hawks player or a brand of baseball that the Hawks are known for? Are they just great at everything or do they lean more toward hitting or pitching or, or do they pursue certain types of players or develop certain types of players? I can't really... It's not really a prototypical sort of Hawks player. I guess maybe if you if you want to give a one example, it'd be, I mean, Senga's a guy like that. He's a guy that they just sort of found. Everybody passed on him. And I remember uh, I was talking with Dennis Sarfate about him one day, and he said it's it's just amazing that the scouts that the scouts found this guy who nobody wanted, and he was the, the he was not just even the first developmental pick that year. I think he was fourth, maybe. And, you know, they they took him and they saw something in him and you know, they developed him. And now he's he if, if Tomoyuki Sugano isn't the best pitcher in Japan, then Senga is. And he came all the way from the bottom rungs of their organization. He's that kind of guy. They've got, you know, they pretty much just have a guy pretty much to back up everyone they have. They have Ukyo Shuto, who was a developmental pick. And basically he was just known for base running and he came up and. He stole 50 bases in 103 games this year, and he was another one of those picks. So I think the prototypical SoftBank player is the player that nobody really saw coming, and they just, for whatever reason, they get their shot, and then they don't let it go. Like the guy who won the Japan Series MVP this year, Ryoya Kurihara, he was like sparingly used until this season, and all of a sudden he gets a chance and plays in over 100 games and hits a lot of home runs for them and comes in as a Japan Series MVP. So I guess their prototypical players is like that that guy that no one really saw coming that they've kind of developed into being a star. I'm always reticent to compare teams in leagues outside of the U.S. to MLB teams because they're wonderful on their own and they don't always have to be in comparison and conversation with MLB teams. But I am curious about how fans of other NPV teams react to the Hawks, because if you look at, you know, some of the more storied franchises in Major League Baseball, their fans are rabid. And I think most fans will acknowledge and have sort of a grudging respect for them, but they can also breed some resentment and jealousy. And so what is the what is the fan culture around uh, the Hawks success over the last couple of years? A lot of it has been sort of like awe of just how is this team doing this? And it's crazy that this team is doing this and that sort of that kind of thing. I don't think the Hawks have breeded that particular resentment yet. I know the Giants definitely have it and people, there are a lot of anti-Giants and people who don't like the Giants really don't like the Giants and they're, you know, they're the Yankees of Japan in that respect as well. I don't think the Hawks have really breeded that sort of contempt. It's just kind of a respect and also they win the Japan series a lot, but they don't win the pennant every year. and. So a lot of like the last couple of Japan series they won, the Sabre Lions won the actual pennant. So it's not as if the Hawks have just won to the point that 
people are tired of them. It's just sort of, wow, this there's a respect for what they've done in the postseason and in the Japan series. And how much continuity has there been in the team's leadership? They've had multiple managers during this run, right? Is there someone in particular who is credited for being the front office architect of this team? And is there kind of a, a lineage from one manager to the next? As far as the um, the lineage from the manager to the next, it's just it's really just been the two guys so far. Um, there's Koji Akiyama, who was the who was the manager before the current manager Kimiyasu Kudo, and he stepped away, I think, for personal reasons actually. And so Kudo came into this team and just took this ready-made team and just ran with it. And it's a lot of the way that Kudo manages is a little bit. I don't want to say it's different than other Japanese managers, but he sort of has tendencies that are. I don't want to say odd, but he's just more of a like an easygoing sort of manager as far as he exerts a lot of control, but then he kind of lets his players, you know, do what they do. And he's very confident in the decisions he makes. And he's he's not a guy who is going to say it's my way or the highway every single time. He's he's become, you know, sort of open to other forms of managing and and especially as far as um like rehabilitation for players and he makes sure those guys have you know the best the, the best treatment when they're injured and take the best care of themselves and they can do that because they have the depth behind them so um and front office wise I don't know if there's really it's not really an an R lineage there it's just sort of I mean O's been the constant in the front office and they've had a lot of money to be able to do a lot of things is there any concern among the front office that with their continued success and some of the, the depth and sort of exciting young guys that they will face pressure from their players or, you know, increased interest from MLB teams to post some of those guys and allow them to come to the U.S. to play in the majors? I don't think so, because um, Senga has been trying to get posted for a couple of years now, and they've just turned him down. And you know, Yuki Yanagida is another another player that MLB scouts have been, you know, looking at and everyone is sort of wondering what he's gonna do and if he's gonna be able to go to major leagues before he signed a long contract. So no, I don't think there's any pressure just because they hold all the cards and they've pretty much made it clear that they're not gonna well, they've made it clear by their actions, basically, that they're not going to post any of their players. So there's really no pressure. The player can ask like Senga has, and they can say no. And is there a tradition in NPP of, you know, when one team has some success that it gets known for a certain philosophy or a, a way of team building, and then that becomes the style that's in vogue, you know, in MLB, when a team has some success, suddenly there are books about them, and it's Moneyball or Astroball or the Cubs way, and, you know, all of their people get poached, and maybe they start some trend, and you alluded to that in the lead that I read earlier that maybe there would be some sort of lasting influence on Japanese baseball here. So what is the potential, do you think, for the Hawks to leave a, a mark on NPB, not just through their current success, but maybe in the way that teams are built? I really think it, it'd have to have a, a, a change in just the way Japanese teams think, just in the fact that the Hawks didn't just start doing this this year or last year that they've been doing this. And so there's there's been time for other teams to sort of 
try to follow what they've done. Now, maybe financially they haven't been able to. And to that point, the Giants have, uh, they have a third team as well. And they've um, started to get a little bit more heavy into it. And I think maybe once the Giants really, really go after it the way the Hawks have, maybe some of the other teams will follow along or maybe the Giants will sort of insert whatever influence they have into making other teams come along and it's not really an original idea when bobby valentine was here he he openly kind of lobbied mpb to add more minor league teams to to make get more people playing baseball to be able to find more talent he wanted to i think he wanted to absorb an independent league or something something weird but you know he came up he it was his i it was something that he had said and then the hawks are now doing basically what you know bobby valentine was preaching was adding a third team so they're okay with some really long flights. Maybe they could just absorb some of the minor league teams in the States that uh, no longer have parent clubs, and that'll work out for everyone. <laughs> just be a lot of jet lag for the prospects. I am curious, and I imagine this is a question that executives on championship teams hate to hear because it implies that we're not going to let them sort of ruffle in their win at all. But as these guys look ahead to next year's season, which I, I think you know, you've written about how this year was a very hard one for a lot of folks and was a disrupted one in NPB, even though they handled their baseball business better than we did here in the states. I'm I'm curious if there are any off-season sort of holes or priorities that they have that they're trying to address going into next year is there are there any points of weakness in this in this monster that has been so successful hmm. well they've got to restock a lot of their foreign talent and that's sort of by I, I think some of that's by choice i don't know how much that has to do with maybe finances because of what happened with the coronavirus but I know there Matt Morris leaving and he was he was here for just this year and he almost threw in, threw seven no hit innings in game three of the Japan series and then they pulled him out of the game. Rick Vandenherk's also leaving. So they've got some they've got a few holes to fill, but for the most part, the guys who were on the field at the Japan series are pretty much gonna be a lot of the guys who are gonna be on the field next year, plus their there's one of their top pitchers now Higashihama he didn't even play in the Japan series because he was injured and they were also missing their best shortstop because he was been injured for pretty much most of the year and they've also got Vladimir Valentin who had a pretty poor year this year so if those guys all come back and Valentin has a big year it's almost as if they've gotten you know talent without even having to go do anything. And is it still a, a fairly young, I mean, in their prime core, even though they've been winning for so long, have they just kept refreshing the roster enough that the outlook for the long term is still pretty positive too? Like there's just no end in sight for this Hawks team? In some points. I mean, they're getting a little, they're starting to get a little older now. I know um, a lot of people have been talking about that because coming into this year there was Sarfate who who didn't who actually didn't get to play this year but he's he's in his late 30s and their gold glove third baseman who just keeps winning golden gloves Nobuhiro Matsuda he almost went to the Padres a couple of years ago I don't know if you remember he's in his he's getting his late 30s mid mid to late 30s There's, they've got another guy former batting champion Seichu Chikawa who couldn't even get on the field this year despite being pretty good on the farm he he's actually gone so it is starting to creep in there a little bit, but they've got guys like Ryoya Kurihara, who won the Japan Series MVP this year. He's fairly young, and Shuto's fairly young, and they've got some some younger, young-ish pitchers. So 
they're going to go through a little bit of a transition, but right now they're still in a pretty good place. Yanagid is still at a pretty good age, so they're all right for the near future. Well, while we had you to ask about the Hawks, we wanted to talk about a few other topics. And I guess to keep things sort of Hawk-centric, there was news this week that uh, another player would be coming over to MLB potentially soon. So there's a, a player who has played for the Hawks who is named Oscar Luis Colas. He is a Cuban player who has been in NPB with the Hawks, and he was just declared a free agent by the Hawks this week. And he caught my eye because the MLB.com story that I was reading about him said that he has been called the Cuban Otani. I don't know who has called him the Cuban Otani or how accurate that is, but he does play outfield. He plays third base. He is a left-handed pitcher. What can you tell us about Colossus and how he might fare here? Well, he, he didn't he didn't play much on the top team here. He played a handful of games, although I think he had a, had a home run in his first at bat. But um, yeah, he played about what seven or eight games in MPB in, in two thousand nineteen, and he did all right. And he he did pretty well. He did really well on the the farm team that year. Um, I know he hit over three hundred and had eleven home runs and stole a couple bases. So he he seems to be a, a pretty a pretty decent hitter is at least against the the MPB farm system. Um, he never pitched in for the Hawks. He pitched for the Hawks is like I like I mentioned earlier their their second farm team, their third team. He pitched for he pitched for them there. So he pitched against some college teams and some industrial teams, amateur teams. As far as how he's going to fare, it's really hard to say. I mean, I only got to see him, you know, for about a you know, a handful of games on the top team. He's got a ton of potential and he's got a, a good build and he's got a really good swing. I don't know if he if they want him to be a pitcher or not, but he's got he throws in the nineties, so he's got a he's just got a, a ton of potential if, you know, he can realize it. So he's still just 22 years old, and maybe the Cuban Otani is a a little bit of an oversell, but uh, it obviously caught my eye. I wonder, because we had you on in 2016 to sort of preview the Otani experience, and it lived up to its billing at least for a little while, but it has not in the last couple of years as he has encountered injuries. and. I wonder what the reception to his most recent season and even the preceding season has been in Japan because he really has never struggled before. He's never really been unavailable before. And I wonder whether there is any belief now that maybe he shouldn't be a two-way player because I'm sure that there will be continued whispers and maybe louder than whispers about that when we get to the 2021 season. But in Japan, everyone has seen him do all of those things and be such an incredible two-way player that maybe it's harder to let go of that idea. And I'm not letting go of that idea. I still like to see it and I hope to see it. But, you know, how big a a blow, I guess, has it been to Otani's fan base to see him be so promising early on and then run into these troubles? I don't really think it's been much of a blow at all. I think most people... And maybe it's it's like you said. I think it's because you know here we we've seen him do it, and we we've seen him go through injuries here too. There was a point where he got hurt, and he basically could only hit; he couldn't pitch. So it's something that people have seen before. I think it's sort of like Zanin. You know, it's just too bad, and he's hurt right now. And when he gets back to being healthy again, then we'll get to see what he does. So I don't really think his 
his fame or his fan base is taking the hit. I think people just understand he's going through a few injuries. I think it maybe it'd be different if he was just really, really bad at one of the two. Then maybe he'd take a little bit of a hit. But I think people understand that he's he's hurt. And so I think that's pretty much where most of his fans are looking at. So there's one more player that we want to ask you about before we let you go, and he's Tomoyuki Sugano, who you mentioned earlier as probably the best pitcher in Japan, and MLB fans will be getting to know him sometime soon if they don't already. He is a 31-year-old right-handed pitcher. He has been in NPB with the Giants for the past eight years, and he has been brilliant with a lifetime 2.32 ERA. So we had you on in 2013 to talk about Masahiro Tanaka, and then we had you on in 2016 to talk about Otani. So now please tell us about Sugano and I guess the prospects of his coming over when those sweepstakes might happen and maybe how he compares as a pitcher, what his strengths are and how you think he'll do. Sugano is really, I guess in a way, really interesting to me because he he's just he's an amazing pitcher and like he's 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 went over his numbers a little bit he's he's won the Sawamura award here twice and he was an MVP and he he may well be the MVP this year I, I think he probably will be the MVP in the Central League this year but um his control is and his command of his pitches is just absolutely amazing and he doesn't throw as hard as Tanaka did when he came over but he his decent velocity his velocity actually went up a little bit this year but his slider is world class and he's just an amazing pitcher and I'm really interested to see how he's going to fare in MLB because I know the strike zone is a little different here than it is in in the majors and it's a little wider probably in Japan but I don't think he's going to have many many issues transitioning over there in terms of that because he's he's so good with his control now so um, I think he I think he has the potential to be a, a pretty good. I don't I don't see him as necessarily like a number one pitcher for someone, but I think you put him like two three in that area. I think he has a chance to be really really good. So I'm actually I'm I'm quite excited to see how he's gonna do just because of how good his control has been in Japan. I, I really want to see how that's gonna translate to you know, major, a major league strike zone and how he's going to handle those pitches because you, you've got to make pitches there. You can get you can get away with a little bit more here than you can get away with against major league hitters. And do you know exactly when he's going to be posted, when teams are going to be able to start bidding on him? Well, he asked today, he asked the team, well, maybe it was last night, but he asked, he formally said, you know, hey, I want to be posted. So it's really just up to when the Giants... I guess get the paperwork and all that in. They haven't done that as of nine thirty nine a.m. Friday morning. They hadn't done it yet, so mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's coming up soon because they've they've pretty much already said that they would allow him to go and that it was his decision. And so he he made his decision already. And he said, I'll, or he made his decision yesterday and said asked him to post him. So. I'm not sure when, but I would imagine it's got to be coming up pretty soon. And you wrote a story about just how mismatched the two leagues in NPB are right now. And Sugano has been in the Central League. The Hawks are in the Pacific League. And the Pacific League has just been dominant lately, much like the AL was over the NL for a, a pretty extended period recently that has changed of late. But what is it exactly that has made the Pacific League seem so superior to the Central League? 
the recently the a popular theory is that it's just the Pacific League has better pitchers. And mm-hmm. and not just that the Pacific League has better pitchers. The Pacific League has better pitchers with like a lot more velocity. Well maybe not a lot more velocity, but uh more velocity than in the Central League. And so the the theory basically is that you've got these guys who are seeing these this high quality fastballs and just better pitchers day in and day out in the Pacific League. So when they do end up playing against the Central League, they're, they're you know they're kind of taking a step down, and it's it's really no trouble for them to handle anything that the the Central League pitchers are going to throw at them. I guess other than the best Central League pitchers that the Central League has to offer, and you know they're just they've become they've just become a better league that way by just seeing better pitching constantly so that they when they see central league guys they there's no it's no trouble for them and so and also just the arms race of fighting with themselves you gotta you gotta be good enough to compete in the pacific league and trying to keep up with the hawks and trying to keep up with you know the saber lions and trying to keep up with the other teams have just that infighting has just sort of made them better. Whereas in the Central League, you just don't really have that. Yeah, that was one of the theories with the AL dominance is that you had the Yankees and the Red Sox over there and they were spending a lot and other teams were trying to keep up with them. And it kind of, you know, brought up the whole level of the league. So maybe it's sort of a similar dynamic. You reported back in October that the Hanshin Tigers are starting a women's team for, they'll have a women's club for 2021. They'll be the second MPB club to sponsor a women's team. And when you wrote the story, you said that details about the selection of a manager and coaches and players were going to be announced at a later date. And I'm curious if there have been any updates about the formation of that club and what inspired the Tigers to be the second team to put a women's club on the field for 2021. Well, they're they're planning to start up early next year. As far as playing, they're still looking for a team. They've got a manager. One of the um, one of the former Tigers players is gonna manage the team. So they've got a staff, and they're looking for players. Um, as far as what inspired them, I I'm not sure. I think it's probably just there's more interest in women's baseball. I mean, it's it's not a major, not a major thing right now at all, but. There's more interest. There was, you know, Madonna Japan, which is what they call the women's national team. They have kind of dominated a lot of international tournaments. And Ayami Sato has gotten a lot of fame for being just like the best female pitcher in the world. And, you know, they've gotten a lot of press. And there was a women's professional league, which is actually going through some trouble recently. But there's been a women's professional league here for a couple of years. And there are more girls baseball teams in high school. And so there's just more girls, more young girls playing baseball than there has been. So I think maybe they've just sort of seen that and they saw that there is some sort of kind of like bubbling interest. And so maybe they want to, you know, try to help support that. I know the Lions, Sabu Lions also have a women's team who just won the women's, the 15th annual like women's all Japan hardball championship. The Sabu team won that in its first year. So I think it's just that there's just a little bit more interest. It's not mainstream by any means yet, but there are more girls playing baseball here. And those teams that are sponsored by NPB teams, those were not part of the Japan Women's Baseball League that you alluded to, right? That was a, a four-team league. So where are the Cebu team and, and maybe the Hanshin team playing or planning to play? I'm not entirely sure where the Hanshin team, I mean, where the Hanshin team is going to play. They may play in the same 
league as Cebu's team, but the Cebu team is are playing kind of like a, it's almost like an amateur ish league. Like I think it's run by the the Women's Japan Baseball Federation. I think I may have that name wrong, but it's sort of maybe semi pro is maybe the best word for it. I don't I don't think they get paid. So I think technically they're amateurs, but it's it's that kind of league. So there's their club teams. And they're just another one of the club teams and they hold tournaments. And I think sometimes uh, there are high school teams that also can play in these tournaments. And then the winners of some of their tournaments end up playing against the professional, the one of the, whichever of the three or four professional teams comes out on top of their league. They play for a title, which the Saitama Astaria may have won this past year. I'm not entirely sure. So it's kind of like a club league in a way. It's like semi-pro that kind of thing but they're technically be classified as amateurs because i'm not sure they get paid do you know why it is that women's baseball and girls baseball has been so much better supported there or why there is just more of an institution and a, a tradition around it compared to the u.s where a lot of girls and women get pushed into softball and you know that's changing to a certain extent i think but the highest level professional league has been in Japan and it just seems like there has been more support over the years there than here. I honestly don't know. I mean that that's a great question because I I spoke to a a female pro player a couple years ago and she said pretty much the same thing that she she started off playing on her local boys team and when she got to high school they kind of pushed her to softball. And she played softball, and then she kind of drifted back to playing baseball. So the, the the same thing happens here too. A lot of top girls players sort of get pushed to softball, and some of them find their way back, and some of them don't. But I think maybe it's just because of there's always the national team there, and so girls have something to aspire to. And I think maybe the national team has gotten more more support maybe than the u.s women's national team if the u.s i don't know i don't i can't say i know much about the u.s women's national team at all so i could be totally wrong about that but maybe they just get more support and a few years ago the the women's japan basically brought all of its national teams under one umbrella and started calling all of them samurai japan and the women's team has been brought under that umbrella too so there's a little bit more visibility more support and so I guess historically, maybe there's been a slightly more visibility for women's baseball and it gives girls that opportunity to say, I don't have to play softball. I can, I can keep playing baseball if I really like to play baseball. And so you see more women play baseball. And so there's still a long way to go because, you know, there's still the controversy about girls not being allowed to, you know, go on the field at Koshien that bubbles up every couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe it's just because there might just be a little bit more visibility or they may see it as more of a viable path in Japan. Whereas in the U S you get pushed, kind of pushed to softball. And that seems to be the, the ceiling for you. Whereas in Japan, you can do a little bit more and I guess get a little bit more visibility. And it, it shows because the Japan national team has been really good. And that's probably because there's so many right. more opportunities for, for girls to play and women to play baseball here. I guess last thing, I kind of was curious about how weird this season was as a whole now that it's over. It was a, a very strange MLB season and extremely curtailed MLB season. 
not only were there many fewer games than there usually are, but there were no fans in the stands until the playoffs at the very end. There were a lot of new rules and roster sizes and all of that. And Japan, of course, has handled the pandemic a lot better than the U.S. has in general. And that's been true in baseball, too. So the season was somewhat delayed and shortened. But you wrote that, you know, by the time the Japan series was being played, there were some fans in the stands and things were kind of normal looking and everything went well. And maybe that bodes well for the Olympics next year. So how weird was it? I guess, you know, what compromises had to be made in terms of attendance, but also rules and all of that, you know, did it feel like a a strange outlier season the way that this MLB season did? Or were things normal enough that at times it just kind of felt like NPB baseball? I think in Japan it sort of just felt like in PB baseball it was it was pretty it was pretty normal I mean I, I think that probably owes to the fact that in NPB they they managed to play 120 games right it wasn't yeah. re, it was a truncated season but what they took out was interleague basically so it was 23 fewer games and it it pretty much played out the same you have ties in Japan anyway but Instead of it being twelve innings, they only played ten innings because they were they were very much worried about well just getting the season in, and they didn't want they were worried about the players, and they didn't want to have all these you know these games lasting as long as they usually do. So you had the truncated games where you had a tie after ten innings. They had the roster sizes; they could have an extra foreign player, but they were there were certain rules about your extra foreign player, but. They changed the rosters in those ways. But for the most part, I think it was pretty much once everyone got used to that games are going to end earlier and it was pretty much a normal season. It's just you didn't have the normal fans in the stands doing all the things that the fans do in the stands during an MPB game, which was a huge loss. And it, it made the game feel just totally different at the beginning because you go from having zero people in the in the stands to then you have some people in the stands, but they're not really cheering and they're not really doing the things that you see MPB teams do. And then it was kind of weird because they started piping in crowd noise which just sounded yeah. canned and artificial but yeah for the most part i think the season sort of it was sort of a normal season once you really got going and yeah once you got to once they got to the japan series i know game four there were almost twenty thousand people there so it was mostly just getting used to the the atmosphere which was totally different but the game itself was pretty much the same and just because you mentioned foreign players, that just sparked one last question in my mind, which is, is the uncertainty in MLB and in the U.S. right now changing at all how NPB teams are looking at recruiting players from the States? Uh, maybe there will be some better players available than usual just because uh, there was no attendance this year. There may not be regular attendance or a regular season next year. So some MLB teams are cutting payroll. There are a lot of free agents out there. Some of them may be a little more receptive to entreaties from a, a Japanese team than they would be normally. So I guess there are limits on how many foreign players you can have anyway. So it, it's not like there will be a, a mass exodus, but is there any uh, consideration, I guess, that maybe a higher caliber of player will be available or, or certain guys who in a normal year might not be? It's possible, but I would say also that the um, the virus did take a hit over, in, uh, the virus did take a hit in Japan too. And yeah. as I know the way like player salaries and things like that worked out, you know, there was no, there wasn't like sort of this 
this deal like there was an MPB where they end up having to pay pay less because of the season being shorter. So you know they're playing the pay they're paying the players' salaries, and then you've also got there's no attendance for until about I think maybe it was the middle of July they started allowing fans in, and then they weren't weren't allowing many fans in. So you know a lot of MPB teams are also kind of feeling the crunch. So and the a lot of the free agent list here was released a couple of days ago. Maybe it was yesterday, but. There are some guys that you wouldn't normally see on it, maybe like Spencer Patton got was as a free agent and Frank Herman, who's with the Marines and some some kind of quality foreign players who in other years might not have hit that list because they would have gotten a new contract. You know, they're on that list. So you may see some MPB teams sign some guys who they know can play in Japan because they've seen them and that's going to be a safer investment for them. But um, yeah, I do think there there is the possibility, though, I mean. There could be some team like again, SoftBank has money and they could they could go out and maybe if there's some a player who is not getting the kind of, I guess, love he thought he'd get in MLB and SoftBank can throw some money at him or the Giants can throw some money at him. I absolutely think that is a, a a possibility. I would say that would probably be a probability for some teams, depending on the player and the price check. The price, you know, but I do think that MPB teams were also feeling the crunch, so it's going to be a bit of a weird offseason here as well. All right. Well, we always appreciate your coming on and filling us in, and you should read Jason's work for the Japan Times. I will link to a lot of the pieces that we referenced during this conversation, and you can find him on Twitter at jcroskrey, J-C-O-S-K-R-E-Y. Thank you again, Jason. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, that will do it for today. And a little bit more Fangraph synergy for you. Check out the latest episode of Fangraph's audio if you want to hear more about non-tenders. Eric Longenhagen and Jason Martinez talked about the non-tenders as a whole. And then Ben Clemens and Craig Edwards talked about the career arc of Kyle Schwarber. So head over to the Fangraph's audio feed. If you want yet more info about non-tenders, you can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Reggie Deal, Tim Moore, Tony C., Michael Bridwell, and Colin Bowman. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with one more episode before the end of this week. Talk to you then. Bye.